The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Tax Talk, White House edition. President Trump scorns the Supreme Court on tax rulings, but the records are still going to stay private. Complete reaction coming from Trump world from Corey Lewandowski as the president heads for a New Hampshire rally. All of that plus presumptive Democratic, not presidential nominee, Joe Biden, offering a build back better approach to reviving the U.S. economy. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger gives us fresh reaction, the Democrat from Virginia. We are also going to hear from a member of the president's economic team, Tyler Goodspeed. He's acting chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Trump and Energy Secretary Dan Brulette. My exclusive interviews with both of them. So we have a lot to get through on what was a very busy day in Washington, D.C., from the Supreme Court to Scranton, folks. We're going to have every angle covered. President Trump responding via tweet to the Supreme Court rulings. And essentially, folks, there were two Supreme Court case rulings uh, that made their way and that were ruled today. The one is with the uh, the House. Remember, the, the Democratic-controlled House, they have been pushing for their for the president and the financial institutions where that have his tax records to hand them over. Well, the Supreme Court said, nah, no, they, they directed it back down to the lower court to take a look at it. But then on the New York prosecution case, they said that the, the financial records institution that has the financial records for the taxes, that they have to hand them over, that they have to hand them over to the New York prosecutors. President Trump didn't like that. And that's where I begin tonight with our first guest, Corey Lewandowski, uh, the campaign manager back in 2016, senior advisor to the president's re-election efforts. All right, Corey, I can't believe all these years later we're still talking about taxes, but I mean, is this going to be an issue heading into November or not? I think very candidly the answer is no. Uh, What do you see when you look at someone's taxes? You see how much money they've made in a calendar year. You've seen what their deductions are. You see what their effective tax rate is. Okay, that's basically the premise of what taxes do. So they show you how much income you've had, they show you how much you've paid in taxes, and they're showing you if you've given a charity or any of those other things. So this notion that the electorate is so enthralled by the Trump taxes that they want to know if President Trump is really rich or if he's really, really rich, I can put that notion behind us right now. He's really, really, really rich. <laughs> so you know, whether he made $500 million last year $600 million last year or $400 million, I can assure you it puts him in the top one-tenth of 1% in America, and whatever his effective tax rate is, is the tax rate. So I don't think this is a, a, a game-changer at all. 
Democrats are saying, well, President Trump's calling it prosecutorial misconduct. Democrats are saying that Cyrus Vance, that's the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, uh, that he's getting his hands on nearly a decade's worth of documents as part of a grand jury investigation, that it could lead to something. But folks, just because Cyrus Vance has the tax records, it doesn't even necessarily mean that they're going to be made public. Either way, it is a, a win and a loss for Democrats and Republicans, respectively. I want to move on. I, I, we had to cover it, but I, I want to move on because Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, unveiled a an economic speech today, Corey, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, his hometown, battleground state of Pennsylvania. President Trump carried the state uh, the first time a Republican has done so since 1988. And this is also where Biden has headquartered his campaign in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, it, it was in many ways a, a populist speech, so to speak, trying to bridge the gra- gap between democratic socialism and centrism. What was your reaction to uh, what the Biden campaign laid out today? Look, it was very Trump-esque. And, and I, let me just say, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way at all, Scranton, Pennsylvania has not been Joe Biden's home in six decades. Now, granted, he was born there. He left when he was 11 years old. The guy's now 77 years old. It's been 66 years since he's lived in Pennsylvania. I think at some point we have to stop saying the guy is from Pennsylvania. I don't know what the criteria is, and I'm only being half facetious. <laughs> but at some point when you haven't lived in the state for 66 years, that's not your home anymore. Right. Joe Biden is from Delaware. Right. But, but <laughs> that, that being said, okay, that being said, um, Look at what Joe Biden had the opportunity to do when he was in the United States Senate for 44 years. He had the opportunity to effectuate real change, and it didn't happen. And only now is he trying to remember those towns like Allenstown and uh, Manesson, where Donald Trump was in 2016 talking about the closed factories. Joe Biden could have done this when he worked in Washington for 44 years and didn't get it done. And now that he's running for president, he's saying we're going to bring jobs back from overseas. I'm going to put America first. Sounds a lot to me like Donald Trump. So, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. And, 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 and Corey's giving us a, a really an insider account into the preview for how the reelection campaign is going to push back uh, against this. But, you know, Corey, I'm looking at some of the headlines on the Bloomberg terminal today, and they're 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 grim in terms of potential job layoffs at Wells Fargo. Uh, yesterday, there was, uh, you know, some airline companies coming out and saying they might have to have layoffs by the end of the year. No, and, and, and no one saw the pandemic coming. And, and I get that. There's also, you know, this stepped up recovery debate happening in at the economic community. We get jobs reports, or, or I'm sorry, unemployment filings from earlier today. You know, how do you draw the contrast between President Trump and nominee Biden in terms of what a first quarter of 2021 would look like under a second term for Trump and a first term for Biden in terms of reopening the economy? It's a great question. It really is a great question. It really should go right to the heart of who's better to take our country forward for the next four years. When Barack Obama and Joe Biden were in office for those eight years, uh, they used terms like these jobs are going away and they're never coming back. And at the beginning of the Obama administration, most people recognized that the economy was in the doldrums. And he did things at the beginning of that where he blamed President Bush for the, the economy that he inherited. But you can't then take credit when Donald Trump changes the economy around uh, after you leave office and say those are because of the Barack Obama-Joe Biden policies. The truth is, under 
Donald John Trump's administration, more people were working than at any time in our nation's history. The unemployment rate was the lowest for African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, women that we have ever seen. And there were more economic opportunities because of the deregulatory environment and the tax cuts that this president put in place. Joe Biden had the opportunity for eight years as the vice president of the United States to create jobs. And instead, we saw Barack Obama go around the country. When coal miners asked him what was going to happen, they said, hey, learn a new job. When uh, steel workers said, what should we do with our jobs? They said, it's cheaper to make it over in China. That's the difference here. The difference is someone who in three years created the economy, which was the envy of the world in the United States, which it was, or Joe Biden, who had a defeatist attitude and said, some of these jobs are never coming back. All right. That's what you have to look forward to. And very quickly, just in, in the minute that we have left, in terms of uh, the, these battleground states, what's the? Give us an inside track. Don't give me give me like the strategy in terms of what the playbook's going to be, because you know you see the polls. We all look at the same polls. I know you're going to say don't believe them, but what are you going to do in, to, to win Wisconsin and Michigan and, and those states? It's very simple, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. Look, President President Trump has come out and said. Open the schools and close the border. Okay? That's a very simple contrast to the Democrats who said, close the schools and open the borders. Okay? That's the truth. This president, Donald Trump, has stood for law and order while the left has said, go ahead and defund the police. When you call 911, maybe the most important three numbers that you can have in your telephone, yeah. we yeah. don't expect Antifa to show up. We expect the men and women in uniform to come and save us every single time. And they do that regardless of race, age, ethnicity, sexual orientation, economic status. It doesn't matter. The men and women who wear that okay. uniform do that. Joe Biden wants to defund them. This president wants to support them. Corey Lewandowski, Senior Advisor of the President's Re-Election Campaign. Appreciate the time. Corey, thanks for checking in with us. Come back and give us another update. Schools, folks, education, I'm telling you, we've been talking about it all week. That's going to be a key issue in this election. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Joe Biden in Scranton, Pennsylvania, announcing a new economic plan. We're going to check in tomorrow with former Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker, who was a key uh, person who helped uh, write that plan, to be honest with you. So we're going to interview her tomorrow. You can watch that interview on Bloomberg Television and, of course, right here on Bloomberg Radio. And coming up, we'll check in with Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia. I want to ask her about that. I want to ask her about the stimulus. Lots of... uh, Lots of stuff on my radar. Uh, earlier this week, I interviewed Tyler Goodspeed. Tyler Goodspeed. Not Tyler Pager, Tyler Goodspeed. Tyler Goodspeed is, of course, the acting chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. We talked all about the economy. Take a listen. I want to ask you about the next rounds of economic stimulus. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says by the end of August. Is that what the White House wants? And what does the White House want to see in the next round of economic stimulus? Yeah, so the, the, the White House, we've had some internal discussions, and, and definitely we do want to see uh, further action to, to facilitate continued recovery, particularly in the labor market. I know that some priorities over here uh, include a, a payroll tax cut uh, and also possibly some, some, some deductions to help businesses uh, tackle the, 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 the new COVID-19 environment, um, and, and also some Live potential liability reform to ensure that businesses are protected against excessive uh, non-economic damages for COVID-related liability. And then also we do want to make sure 
uh, especially uh, as the labor market continues to recover, that we're striking the right balance between income replacement on the one hand and ensuring that we don't have excessively high implicit tax rates on the return to work uh, on the other hand. You know, I think that's really, that's the point I want to pick up on is that is that increased taxes, especially for individuals when they return to work. You know, the unemployment benefits are, are set to end, the extra unemployment benefits are set to end at the end of the month, July 31st. What do you think is going to be done with stimulus and unemployment benefits? Right. So I think during the, the, the depths of the, the crisis, so when we think back to, to April, um, you know, this was the worst economic shock to the U.S. economy since, since at least the 1930s. And when we look at all the economic indicators, I mean, it was on track to be a, a really devastating economic contraction. And so with a view to the fact that household spending is 70% of the U.S. economy. I think at the time, it was very important that we made sure to really buffer household incomes um, and, and make sure that we didn't see a collapse in consumer spending. And so one of the things about the, the, the expanded unemployment insurance benefits and the rebate checks is that they were very tar much targeted toward the lower end of the income distribution. So when you look at the, the months of household income replaced by the CARES Act provisions, they were very much uh, geared toward uh, the lower end of the income distribution. So I think in any, any future rounds of, of discussions with, with Congress, we want to, as I said, make sure that we're, we're not allowing a big blow to household income and consequently to consumer spending, while also making sure that we don't have really high implicit tax rates on, on that return to work. So I, I think what's what's interesting, and, and you know this, Tyler Goodspeak, who's on the line with us. You know, in terms of some Republicans that I talk to, they're a bit nervous, Tyler. They're a bit nervous that you know you, you increase the unemployment benefits and folks will will be less incentivized to go back to work. Is that a concern that the White House has? And how do you work with policymakers on the Hill to prevent that, if that's the case? Right. So as I said, yeah, we we definitely don't want to see. Uh, implicit tax rates exceeding 100 percent, meaning, you know, the, the, the folks are financially better off uh, on unemployment insurance than, than in employment. Um, and so, you know, we just we, we definitely want to make sure that we strike that right balance. Um, and so one of the things about some of the, the extraordinary provisions of the CARES Act is that they were set to expire. Um, because I think one of the lessons we learned in the aftermath of 2008-2009 is that when you have a lot of high implicit tax rates on work, it can really hinder the recovery of the labor market. And you know, until the labor market recovers, you don't really observe a, a strong recovery in the overall economy. And just a final question for you, Tyler Goodspeed, and this is about small businesses. How do we make sure that in the re uh, recovery that Main Street is not going to be left behind? Because when you look at you know sort of how this has gone, it's been minority groups who economically have really felt the brunt of this, as well as some small businesses. So what can policymakers do to prevent that? Great question. So certainly, you know, we've already seen in the CARES Act, a lot of the aid, in fact, most of the aid to, to businesses were to small businesses. So the Paycheck Protection Program that was very much geared towards small businesses, uh, the average loan size was just over $100,000, and almost 90% of the loans approved were for 150000 or less. Um, I think moving forward, 
you know, we want to make sure that any, any continuing support for, for businesses are, are likewise targeted towards smaller firms that, you know, are, are, have a more difficult time weathering some of these adverse shocks. Um, and then on the, on the labor market front, you know, the, the faster we can get folks back to work in a, in a safe environment, um, the, the faster we can help those at the lower end of the income distribution. Because remember, if we cast our minds back to February 2020, before the pandemic really got, got underway, uh, it was the lower end of the income distribution that was enjoying the fastest wage growth. African Americans were, for the first time during the preceding expansion, experiencing faster wage growth than white Americans. Those without a college degree were experiencing, for the first time in the expansion, faster wage growth than those with a college degree. Right. Um, you know, the, fa- the, the faster we can return to that sort of tight labor market, I think, you know, the, the, the quicker we can return to a state of affairs in which those who were previously left behind during the preceding expansion can finally enjoy the, the fruits of, of a continuing expansion. So All I right. think we're definitely going to keep, keep focused on facilitating uh, labor market recovery, because as I said, until the labor market recovers, we don't see a, we won't see a, a broader economic recovery. And then just one final note, you know, we saw already in the June jobs report, uh, job gains for African-Americans was the second highest uh, on, on record. Uh, the, the, the record was actually in, in February 2018, uh, following the, the 2017 tax, uh, tax law. Um, so as I said, you know, it, the, the faster we can get back to a, a tight, growing labor market, uh, the faster we can observe uh, a, a, an overall recovery. That was my interview with Tyler Goodspeed, acting chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration. And coming up, we check in with Energy Secretary Dan Brulette and Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Did you see this? Stocks drop on coronavirus spread. Reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, U.S. equity slumped on concern that a resurgence in coronavirus cases will derail the comeback for the world's biggest economy. Oil dipped below $40 a barrel and treasuries jump. Meanwhile, financial companies were among the worst performers on the S&P 500 index, as Wells Fargo prepared to cut thousands of jobs because of the pandemic, and the Dow Jones Industrial Averages loss exceeded 1.3% as Boeing dropped. The Nasdaq gauges advanced as big tech stocks rose. You know, folks, it all comes as everyone's trying to figure out the pace of this recovery. You know, I mentioned that oil dipped below $40 a barrel earlier today, and the energy market has just been really hitting it geo getting hit geopolitically as well as a result of the uh COVID-19 pandemic and that's where I began my interview with Secretary of Energy Dan Burlett take a listen to what he told me 
Uh, Mr. Secretary, thanks so much for being here. I want to get your reaction uh, to really what's been going on at a court order that says the Dakota Access crude oil pipeline has got to shut down. And then you've got developers of the Atlantic Coast gas conduit saying that they've got to cancel the project. Are these... Are these types of pipelines, these massive pipelines, are these a thing of the past, or what has to be done in order to allow them to be built? Oh, that's great. Hey, great to be with you again, Kevin. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about these issues today. No, they're not done. Uh, they're not uh, dinosaurs and not things of the past. Uh, very disappointing news coming out of um, you know the East Coast with regard to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, however. So, you know, look, I understand the decision. It's an economically rational decision. These people have spent $3 billion over six years. Uh, they won a Supreme Court case, and yet they are still unable to see their way through uh, to develop this pipeline. It's very, very concerning. Uh, we'll see what the next steps are there, but I understand the decision, and while disappointing, uh, um, you know, I think it's probably at this point an economically rational decision. I am not quite certain, however, that I understand, you know, what the environmental activists are actually celebrating, uh, you know, except for perhaps the loss of American jobs and the, uh, the loss of access to cheap, gas, uh, cheap natural gas down in North Carolina and other places along the pipeline. Uh, not much there to cheer about, in my opinion. With regard to the Dakota Access Pipeline, we'll have to wait and see. I did review the decision quickly. Um, I assume that the parties that are involved with that are going to avail themselves of whatever legal options present uh, are presented to them. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what those decisions are. But it's very, very important that uh, we, we take advantage of these opportunities to create uh, what the president calls regulatory certainty. Uh, and he has directed me very early in this administration to look at the regulations within the Department of Energy, eliminate those that are redundant or simply unnecessary. And we've done exactly that. So we're going to continue that as we move along. You know, even beyond that, we're staring down, Mr. Secretary, the prospects of another economic stimulus ahead of the August recess. What would you like to see included in that? And do you think that more government aid is going to be needed for the oil and gas industry at this point? You know, I think I think what's happening in the energy industry uh, depends on what part of the industry you're talking about, obviously. But, you know, with regard to things like oil and gas, uh, we're seeing demand for refined product come back in a very good way, very aggressive way. As that demand curve continues to increase, as people begin to get out and about, as the economies continue to open, uh, we're going to see these guys do just fine. I am so proud of this particular industry because of the innovations that they've been able to develop over the course of the last two, three, perhaps four decades that allows them to ramp up and down their production numbers very, very efficiently. So, you know, I think as we continue to open up, we're going to have a great, great economic recovery, and energy is going to underpin almost all of it. And and to, to bring it back to what you said, I mean, we're, we're talking macro right now, but to go down to the to the localized level for so many of these individuals, whether they're court cases or whether they're they're you know the, the back and forth of what's going on, on on Capitol Hill, these are jobs for many people and in, in, in parts of the country that have been just completely economically devastated as a result of this pandemic. What what needs to be done to help those? refinery workers to be helped to help those uh, you know drillers who want to get back to work maybe they are reopening but they're staring these down the headlines of all of this economic uncertainty what needs to be done to specifically help them we need to continue to open up the economy that's what's going to help them the most and i think the president is very appropriately pursuing that 
you know, with regard to the other government programs, the CARES Act, the Pay, uh, Check Protection Act, um, all of those programs, I think Secretary Mnuchin and others have done a great job of making those available to the energy industry. I know that many have taken, um, taken advantage of or made uh, those programs available to their employees as well as their, you know, their corporate entities. We need to continue to see that happen as we move along. But first and foremost, you know, the demand for energy is going to fix so many of these issues that we're dealing with right now in the economy. And um, I think the president has done a great job of opening up the economy in a way that protects the health and welfare of the American people and creates the economic activity that we need to see these industries survive and thrive post-pandemic. On the Dakota Access Pipeline, why is that so critical at a time, especially when there's an energy surplus surplus in depressed markets and, and along with this gl- greater global reliance on renewable sources? Talk to me about Dakota Access. Well, these, sure. Well, these types of pipelines, you think about what they're bringing in and you think about what their purposes are. You know, in, in many cases, they're bringing in, for instance, crude oil that's uh, necessary for certain refineries here in the United States. You know, yep. we talked about in- energy independence in the past, and we talked about the fact that our production numbers are now very, very high. And the United States is, in fact, independent of many of the the negative uh, consequences of being too dependent upon adversarial nations. But what happens in trade is that certain types of oil are, are very advantageous to certain refineries. And that's what we're seeing in the case of some of the pipelines in the Northeast. Canada produces very heavy crude that is needed at, at these refineries. So bringing it in and allowing that trade to happen is very important. If you shut down the pipeline, you've shut off an avenue uh, for a very important resource for many parts of the country, places like Ohio, uh, places uh, down in Houston, Texas, where you know these refineries are set up for this heavy crude. Do you think we need to, 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 to do something to the permitting system? And is that an, a congressional fix or an executive order fix or any actions that you it, can take? Well, I, I think I think what the president has is directed us to do at the federal level uh, is working. So, for instance, I'll give you just a very practical, common sense example. You know, uh, if we have to do an environmental review at the Department of Energy, for instance, uh, as part of the permitting process for an LNG export facility, uh, we take a very common sense step and we say, well, has anyone else already done an environmental review? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we rely upon the work that's already been done rather than initiating a complete new process uh, to do what other agencies have already completed. Reliance upon their work is a very appropriate step for us to take, and that eliminates millions of dollars in permitting fees, legal fees, other types of costs to these important projects. And final question for you. on uh, Earlier this week, Denmark uh, gave the Nord Stream 2 permission to use pipeline vessels uh, in order to complete the final stretch of, of the pipeline. And this you know, they're saying is is only going to enhance their ability to get Russian natural natural gas to Europe. This is becoming more controversial, as you know, Mr. Secretary, by the day, and it really could alter the political dynamics for Europe and Russia, increasing Europe's reliance on Russian energy and therefore have U.S. implications. I just want to ask you where the administration is on this standpoint uh, in terms of Europe and Russia and their energy reliance on each other. I think we're in the same place that we've always been. The president nailed it two years ago when he attended the NATO conference and said he asked a very basic question, a very direct question. He said, you know, wait a minute. I'm protecting you from the very people that you're buying your energy from. Explain that to me. And he was speaking very specifically to German and and Europeans generally. 
So, you know, this was in the context of their contributions to NATO, which I understand to be still somewhat deficient. So we're going to continue our opposition to the pipeline. Uh, we appreciate what the Danes are doing. We think it's very important that they apply the European regulatory construct to this particular pipeline, and we're going to continue our pressure on them to insist that they do exactly that. That was my interview with Energy Secretary Dan Burlett. I'm, and uh, he, of course, is the uh, Energy Secretary, uh, Secretary Dan Burlett. Coming up, we check in with Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Bear with me, folks. My headphones fell off. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. Working from home, I don't know what just happened with those headphones. My next guest, Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. Congresswoman, Democrat from Virginia. Appreciate you calling in. I, I, I guess you're back on Capitol Hill, but working from home has probably been stressful for lawmakers, too. <laughs> Actually, we are not on. Uh, we are not on Capitol Hill this week. We will be back uh, next week. I guess it is. So yes, it has been. Or right. we have another week back in district, and then we're headed back to Washington. It's just so the Zoom between the Zooms and the Skypes and the Nexi calls. I mean, it's just like, all right, I get it. We're socially distant, but you know, I can't <laughs> wait for when we get that finally get that vaccine and we can go back to normal. I want to get your take. Congresswoman Spanberger serves on two committees: the U.S. House Committee on Foreign Affairs and the U.S. House Committee on Agriculture. Let's start with agriculture because uh, the presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden today unveiling uh, his economic pitch. And, and really, agriculture is such a core tenant of this. And really, I would argue, could decide the election between the U.S. and China relations. What would you hope that a, a Democratic Biden administration would do that the Trump administration isn't doing on agriculture? I, I, well, <laughs> there's, a, there's a number of things that I would start with. First and foremost, engaging in a needless trade war uh, with one of the primary buyers of American uh, soybeans, I think, is, is a reckless um, policy choice that, that doesn't help uh, our agricultural community. Um, so that's first and foremost, I would, I would want a Biden administration to pursue policies that are going to help our farmers and producers ensure that they have access to markets to sell their goods uh, so that they can continue to do what they love, what they're good at, and what we uh, need them to do. I would also want a Biden administration to recognize the real value uh, that farmers and producers and foresters can bring to the discussion related to global climate change. I just introduced a bill in the House. We've got a companion bill in the Senate uh, that was introduced by Senators Braun and Stabenow called the Growing uh, Climate Solutions Act. And, and this act focuses on uh, lowering carbon emission, getting to net zero carbon emission by bringing uh, in a formalized way our farmers and producers and foresters to the table to talk about what is it that agriculture is doing to uh, capture carbon and to sequester carbon. And it's a big part of the discussion, it should be, as it relates to, to climate change um, and environmental policy. And then, you know, I, I think that there's issues related to larger infrastructure, broadband internet. Uh, as I had one farmer in my district tell me, farmers are the original work-at-home folks, and 
yeah. you know, they communicate with their buyers and with their vendors and with the repair folks for their heavy machinery using the Internet. And so many of our rural communities and our agricultural communities don't have access to Internet. Uh, we in the House actually just passed a $100 billion bill as part of the larger infrastructure package that would essentially deliver Internet nation, uh, you know, across the nation coast to coast. My expectation is in conference, uh, if that's where we end up when it comes to infrastructure, that that might, there might be some shifts and some changes, but I think it speaks to the fact that uh, we need to no longer just look at infrastructure as the roads and bridges across which our products and our people go, but in fact also the digital highway that our, you know, our information and our orders and our business uh, is also uh, conducted. And of course, there's other elements to the yeah. broadband discussion related to education and healthcare. Uh, but to answer your question related to agriculture, I think those are the kind of the three pillars right. that I would want to see from a Biden administration. And, and Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger is on. She served in the CIA prior to, to serving in Congress. She's a Democrat from Virginia. I want to pick it up on something that you had mentioned, Congresswoman, with regards to uh, infrastructure, digital infrastructure, so crucially important. You represent a rural district. Many of your colleagues in the House uh, represent parts of cities. And this is the one thing rural and urban communities share in common is that access to, uh, to, to broadband and to digital infrastructure. And there's a national security element here, especially as the Chinese are trying to, to, to steal away some U.S. allies and get them dependent upon 5G networks you know, run by Huawei and the likes. What, where do you think U.S. policy with regards to China goes in a Biden administration? And then I want to ask you about your hearing today. Well, so I actually, um, and this wasn't a planted question, I'm glad you bring this one up, because I actually had a bill, my bill that was uh, signed into law of, in March of this year, uh, focused on 5G technology and countering threats from foreign uh, producers and developers of 5G technology. Uh, it's a, applied across the board to any foreign uh, producers of these technology, but of course, when we look at the real challenges posed by Huawei and ZTE to Chinese companies, given the close relationship of the Chinese government and, and military and intel services to those companies, you know, there's some real threats to our, our digital infrastructure. And so, you know, part of what my bill lays forth is a, a requirement that the administration uh, develop a plan for how we can protect ourselves and um, uh, American information and privacy, but how we can also make a plan to compete um, and ensure that there are American options or, or certainly options that we don't deal, deem to be a national security threat uh, in the in the realm of 5G advancements uh, so that those advancements are available to U.S. consumers without potentially risking their data and their privacy. And then to a larger degree, I, I would like to see uh, the Biden administration take a, 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 take a strong stance, um, you know, focused on developing, um, you know, an understanding with China. We, there's been so much challenge recently related to COVID-19 and the COVID-19 pandemic. I, I think what's getting lost in the conversation at times is that, you know, historically, we know that China is not always forthright with information. It's the very nature of their government. Um, and we right. have previously relied on our liaison relationships and our diplomatic relationships with other partner nations uh, and our own intelligence services to kind of get a better idea of maybe what's happening on the ground in China. That's why we had, uh, you know, formerly the PREDICT uh, entity on the ground in China to help predict future pandemics. That's why we had physicians 
on the ground in Wuhan to, right. um, until they were pulled out by the Trump administration, administration recognizing that the, the government of China is not always forthcoming with information. Con- um, and I, I think we have to you know, be, I, I would want the Biden administration to be eyes wide open about the challenges that, that China does present, be it govern, government or uh, engagement or certainly in the economic realm. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger joins us. I got two more questions for you. We got two minutes left. I want to get them both in. You were at a hearing today on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and it focused on Russia and Afghanistan. Uh, Secretary Pompeo declined to attend this hearing. Uh, What did you learn from this hearing? So the hearing I thought was very valuable because we were talking about many of the same issues. Primarily, we were talking about the allegations of Russian bounties on the head of U.S. service members. Uh, there were a couple opportunities for uh, former members of the intelligence community to really clear the air on what it is uh, if information is of the level that it gets into the PDB. Of course, as a former intelligence officer, um, I was aware of some of these thresholds, but listening to uh, former director uh, Mike Morell talk about the fact that information that goes into the PDB is there because it is deemed to be of that most uh, of that high level importance. We had a number of different conversations related to what should our reaction be. Um, everybody of the witnesses seemed to be in very clear agreement, or at least I'll say agreement, that we should be presenting a strong, unified um, response to these allegations. Uh, those who wish to caveat them, depending upon, uh, you know, in, in, in pursuit of additional information to perhaps provide more verification of these allegations, can caveat them and say, you know, if these allegations are true, then. But the denunciation of uh, of what Russia has done needs to be clear, it needs to be pronounced, and it needs to be unequivocal. And that's not what we have seen from this administration. Actually, as our hearing was occurring um, in the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Armed Services Committee was having a concurrent committee hearing, and they had Secretary of Defense Esper there, who said that he didn't recall ever being briefed on something related to the word bounty. You know, yeah. it is a mincing of words. Uh, any situation in which the Russian government is doling out dollars for dead Americans, you can call it what you want, but I call it egregious and horrible, and it should face the aggressive denunciation of the United States government. Um, and so among the other things that we were talking about uh, in this hearing was how do we put pressure on yeah. the Russians? Yeah. How do we leverage our asymmetric advantages? And how do we make our pressure comprehensive and on the Russian people? Because that's really when Vladimir P- Putin will start to make some changes, potentially in his behavior. Is All right. We got to leave it there. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia. Thanks so much for joining us. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.